Good morning. You guys ready? Ready for this Bible study? Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. Exodus, the way out. Exodus chapter 21 is where we'll be. We're going to work from 21 to 23. The title of this weekend's message is Live Your Faith. Also grab your sermon notes out. Take a quick glance at those sermon notes. Pretty overwhelming. That's crazy, huh? A lot of stuff there. We got a lot to cover. We're going to cover three chapters here. And uh, let me start with this. Uh, remember what we talked about last week. The gospel is not, the gospel is not I obey, therefore God accepts me. That's called legalism. There's, that's taught in many churches that you got to obey God and then he'll accept you. That's called legalism. Nor is the gospel God accepts me, therefore I don't have to obey. That's called liberalism. Both of those doctrines are taught quite a bit here in America and churches throughout the world. And there are even churches that will go back and forth between those two sometimes. But the gospel is this, God accepts me in Christ, therefore I want to obey. I want to follow him. And that's the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, God accepts me in Christ is called justification. We talked about all of this last week and just kind of bring you up to speed here a little bit and then uh, I'm gonna make a, a major point here that's on your notes there. But God accepts me in, in Christ is called justification. Therefore, I want to obey is called sanctification. So in justification, God sets us free from the penalty of sin. He, he removes all of our sins. He forgives us of all of our sins. It is an imputed righteousness or a positional righteousness. I stand perfectly right before God because of what Jesus Christ has achieved for me. It's been imputed to me. He took my sins. I took his righteousness. I stand perfectly righteous before God because of that. So he accepts me in Christ. Therefore, I want to obey. So the therefore I want to obey is sanctification. Sanctification is where God sets us free from the power of sin. It is an imparted righteousness or a practical righteousness where he begins to transform our lives. Now take a look at your notes. Here's where our problem is as Christians. It's called the gospel gap. The gap we all struggle with is the disparity between what I believe and how I behave. It is the inconsistency between my spirituality and my reality. Let me give you a quick example of what I mean by that. It just, uh, for instance, um, uh, 1 John 3, 1 says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. That's a phenomenal verse. But do you actually really believe that? Do you live like that verse is... Uh, is true to you. In other words, too often, I mean, that verse is so profound that if we really understood that we are lavished by the Father's love, that he accepts us in Christ, and therefore, I want to follow him. But too often, I know that my behavior in bad circumstances tends to be more, less of a, a, a child lavished by his father's love and more like a fatherless, futureless orphan. Oftentimes, that's how I'm, I'm kind of responding to my life circumstances. And so there's that gospel gap. Yeah, the Bible says one thing, I believe this, and yet sometimes my behavior betrays me. Anybody know what I'm talking about there? You guys, okay, not enough hands were raised at that time. 
Okay, there, was, there should have been more hands raised, but some of you are still probably trying to figure it out, but there's like just a handful of hands, so we're the only ones that struggle with it, apparently, just those that raised their hands. Let, let, let me ask you to raise your hand one more time. How many would say, yeah, there's that disparity? Okay, cool, okay. Some of you were, had to raise the hand of somebody next to you just to get them to raise their hand. Okay, so we struggle with this disparity, the gospel gap. It is the gap between the fact that your past sins are forgiven, which is, that's... That's pretty, pretty amazing in itself that Jesus died on the cross for all of my sins, past, present, future. Justification and your future in heaven is secure, this glorification. But how do you live your faith in the here and now? That's called sanctification. How do I do that? How do I do that? How do I, how do I live as a, as a child lovished by his heavenly father in my response to the circumstances of life, to the trials and the temptations of life. Uh, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, one of the cross-references I put on your notes there, part of the intro, is that uh, Paul puts it like this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for it. These are Christians he's talking to. He says, work it out. He's just saying, you, you have to learn how to implement what you believe is true about you in Christ into the specific areas of your life. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So he gives you the desire, gives you the ability. Now begin to work that out in the details of, of your life. I gave you another example I thought was a pretty profound example that Paul is confronting Peter, Cephas, uh, over his racism, it's found in Galatians 2.14, and it says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. So his racism wasn't in step with the truth of the gospel. I said, what are you doing, Peter? What are you doing, Cephas? This is inconsistent. Your beliefs and your behavior, there's a disparity between the two. That's what he's saying here. Now, now let me... Let me bring you up to speed here to where we are in our study through the book of Exodus. It's on your notes there. Having redeemed Israel, that's the first 19 chapters of Exodus, and given them the Ten Commandments, that's chapter 20, Moses explains and applies God's law to various aspects of their everyday life. That's the next three chapters that we're going to kind of do an overview of, and uh, I'll explain a little bit more as we work through it. But the first thing we're going to do here, let's pray, let's ask for God's help before we dive into our texts and unpack these notes. God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love you because you first loved us, 1 John 4, 19, and your perfect love chases away the fears in our lives, 1 John 4, 18. But we confess that too often, too often your love is an, is an abstraction rather than the infinitely consoling presence it should be in our lives. And bad circumstances can lead us to inordinate anxiety, anger, and even despair. So we ask you, teach us, teach us through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, how to narrow the gap between our beliefs and our behavior, our spirituality, and our reality, so that we can live our faith more and more for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. So let's, uh, let me explain some things to you. And uh, I'm, I'm, this study, this is the third time I'm doing a study here. We have Saturday night, and then we had the early morning service. And so here's my fear, is that we go through this. I'm going to hit you with so much information. If you don't have a set of notes, you're just going to be totally lost here in the next 15, 20 minutes. And some of you, your eyes are going to roll back in your head, and then we're going to have to call 911, and we're going to have to get somebody to come in and resuscitate you. I don't want that to happen, okay? So, so you need to work hard at, you know, paying attention, because I want to get you 
through these three chapters, this overview of the three chapters, because I want to emphasize the last two points on the notes, the last two sections are the most important. And if you miss that, you miss the, the big idea of this message. But what we're studying here is, is certainly important. And what we're looking at is the civil law of the Israelites. So what Moses is doing is that he's applying the Ten Commandments into their everyday life. And, and anytime you study in the Old Testament, you've got to make a distinction between uh, their ceremonial law, their civil law, and then the moral law. Because a lot of times people go, well, what, what applies to us? What doesn't apply to us? And that's where all the controversy comes in there. Now, we know that the ceremonial law was fulfilled by Jesus. So that's the reason why we don't kill sheep and do sacrifices and stuff like that. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. We also know that the, that the civil law, as you read the civil law, uh, many of these laws will seem extreme if you fail to understand them in light of Israel's theocracy. We have a democracy. They have a theocracy. And, and it'll, it'll be really hard to understand if you don't understand their unique cultural and historical context. Now, there are certainly overarching principles that apply to us, and I'm going to help us do that. So what Moses is doing, he's taking the moral law and pointing it out and showing them civilly, this is how I want you to live out the gospel. He's narrowing the gap for them. He says, here's what we believe. This is how God has redeemed us. Now, here's the Ten Commandments. Now, this is how we work them into our everyday life. That's what he's doing here. And uh, certainly, the moral laws apply, you know, apply to all of us. Jesus summarized all of the laws in two laws. You guys remember the law of Christ? What are the two laws that Jesus summarized the, the Ten Commandments in? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Absolutely. That's it. So he summarized it right there for us. And so in, in, in a sense, what Moses is doing, he's showing us how to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he's showing the Israelites how to do that. So it's really going to be hard. Some of the stuff, especially at the front end of this, is gonna, you're going to be like, wow, this, that sounds really hardcore. But here's the first section. It's caring for servants or caring for slaves in some translations. And I prefer to call it caring for employees. And you'll see why I say that here in a moment. And I put that in parentheses on your notes. And so let's begin reading. This, these verses will not be up on the screen. Or maybe they will. Have you guys been putting those up on the screen? Maybe you have. Okay. Okay. Maybe not. Just we'll see. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> here we go. Chapter 21, verse 1, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. So this is instruction to the people in general, but specifically to the leaders that Moses has delegated authority to from his father-in-law's Jethro's advice in chapter 18. Remember father-in-law Jethro showed up and said, uh, Moses, what you're doing isn't smart. You're trying to rule and judge and, you know, help people work out the details of their life and you can't do that on your own so you need to set up these leaders and so now he's speaking to these leaders and giving them the criteria in which they need to exercise justice to the people implementing the Ten Commandments into their everyday life and notice what he says first of all in verse 2 when you buy a Hebrew slave oh there it is it is up there see there you go when you buy a Hebrew slave you shall serve six years or he shall serve six years. Immediately when you say Hebrew slave, they believed in slavery? Wait, 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 don't, don't go there. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. Now, 
So the first section is the general instruction on this caring for servants, caring for employees, verses one through four. In verses five and six, now jump to verse five because I want to read verses five and six here to you. So on the sixth year, he's set free. Notice what it says in verses five and six. This talks about bond servants. It says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, and I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God And he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through within all. So he's going to pierce his ear, and he shall be his slave forever. It's called the bond servant, bond slave. Love servant is the idea here. And uh, and then verses 7 through 11 talks about female uh, slaves, employees, I prefer to call it. And so... uh, And here's why I prefer to call it employees, because this is not slavery like we think about in American history. In fact, most people ran small family businesses and their slaves were more like employees in the business, uh, in in their business who lived at the owner's place. And so they were basically contract workers And during the time of Moses, people would hire themselves into service of others, often because of debt or to improve their economic status and future success. And and you have an example of that in verse 7. I didn't read verse 7 for you, but you want to keep your Bibles open there next to your notes because I'm going to keep referring back to these texts. But verse 7, it says, a man selling his daughter as a slave. That almost goes, what? He's selling his daughter as a slave? Well, it's not what it seems like because we have a wrong concept of this And so they worked hard in exchange for room, board, and an honest wage. So what he's doing is that he's contracting his daughter out to this man to work for him because it helps her maybe find a husband or could help her economically that the father cannot provide for her. And so this is what you need to know is that involuntary slavery was forbidden. The kind of slavery we saw early in in America is totally forbidden by Scripture. And you see that in this chapter. In fact, uh, look at verse 16 of chapter 21. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Do you hear that? that? That's what was happening in America in the early years of slavery. Also notice verses 26 through 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave or free, uh, let, the, let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. What is it saying? His debt is paid in full, he can, he's released. In fact, you, you, you can't uh, have him work for you anymore. And, and so this type of service was also temporary, as we said. It ended after how many years? Six. After six years. They were set free. That was found in verse 2. Here's, here's the overarching uh, application to our lives here today. Here's the first one. Treat people who work for you. Treat people who work for you with utmost respect and generous compensation. If you want to learn more about this, uh, Ephesians 6, 5 through 9 talks about employer-employee relationship. Here's the second one. Treat them so well that they will want to voluntarily continue to serve out of their love for you. That's that's part of this also. So, uh, in other words, their service for you goes from duty, have to, to want to, delight. 
This is a great picture of our relationship with God. The Apostle Paul often refers to himself as a bondservant. This is what he's talking about. When the Apostle Paul refers to himself through his writings, I'm a bondservant, bondslave of Christ. I'm a love servant. I serve him not out of duty. I serve him out of delight. I love him. I've devoted my whole life to him. And that's what he ta- he's talking about here. Uh, David in the Psalms also refers to this. In Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, he says, he says in that, uh, let me read that to you. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. In other words, he doesn't want us to just robotically go through the motions. But you have given me an open ear. In other words, you've pierced my ear. It's referring to this to this event of a bondservant. In other words, you don't want my duty, you want my delight. In fact, in verse eight of Psalm 40, he says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. So that's the idea of that, that the servant would say, I I delight to do your will. I wanna follow you to the end of my life. I wanna serve you out of my love for you. And so it's a beautiful picture of our relationship with, with Christ. Here's the third one. Treat female employees lovingly and justly, protecting them emotionally and physically. That's found in verses 7 through 11, though we did not read that. This is particularly relevant, in, uh, and, relevant and extremely important in our hashtag Me Too culture of sexual misconduct and abuse. There's some really important principles there. So that's the first section. We're going to keep rolling here. There's a lot here. And so the next section deals with compensating personal injuries and property. So we're doing an overview of chapters 21, 22, and 23. That's where we are. And so compensating personal injuries and property. He's, he's applying the Ten Commandments into their everyday life. And, and this is found in Exodus 21, starting at verse 12, all the way to chapter 22 to verse 15. The first thing that he deals with in verses 12 through 14 in, verse, uh, in chapter 21, intentional and unintentional homicide, how to deal with that. And then assault or cursing parents in verses 15 through 17. And then he deals with life-threatening injuries in verses 18 through 21. Let me read verses 18 and 19. When men quarrel, this is chapter 21, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, so he's injured, he's got to recover, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. So he's going to take some responsibility for beating the guy up. That's what he's saying. Verses 22 through 27 talks about permanent injuries. And then injuries associated with animals is found in verses 28 through 32. In other words, if your dog bites someone, you're responsible. And then you've got, uh, we, now we're in chapter 22 of Exodus. And verses 1 through 15 deals with property damage or loss. In other words, let me summarize it. If someone drives their chariot into your house, they are liable. That's, what, that's the point that he's making here. So if someone damages your property, they're liable. Okay, here's the overarching principles for our lives. As image bearers of God, people and their property matter to God. This is the big idea. As image bearers of God, People and their property matter to God. Here's the next point. God is just and demands justice. Therefore, the punishment should fit the crime. 
God is just and demands justice, therefore the punishment should fit the crime. Look at verses 23 through 25 of chapter 21. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Get the point? An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you've heard that before. And here's the third point, I'm sorry doesn't cut it, you must make restitution. That's the big idea. Matthew 5, 23 through 26, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said that if you come and you offer your gift at the altar to God and there remember that your brother has something against you, he says, stop, drop the gift, whoa. Let's do that again. What was that? Did that help? Did that kind of blast your ears? Man, I've got like special power up here this morning. And watch out. I forgot it, even what I was talking about there. I got so distracted by that sound. But, uh, so so you're, all, you're offering your gift at the altar to God and uh, you have something, your brother has something against you. He says, drop the gift. I won't do that. But he uh, <laughs> says, drop the gift and go and make things right with your brother before you come back and offer your, your offering to me. And why is that? Why would he do that? He's saying, make restitution. Make things right. Because he's saying, you know what? You're missing the whole point because if you are right before me, I've accepted you, I love you, I've forgiven you of your sins, you've received my mercy, you should be giving that to others. And if you're not giving it to others, it's because you haven't received it from me. There's something wrong between you and I. You need to go make that right and then come back and then I'm, you're gonna have a better understanding of what I'm trying to do in and through your life. There's a, there's a breakdown between our relationship with God and in that, that's what he's saying. He said, this is serious business. How we treat others is a reflection on, on our relationship with God. And that's why it tells us in Romans 12, 18, it says, as far as it concerns you, be at peace with everyone. Be at peace with everyone. Okay, so that's, that's that section. And so uh, here's the last section, and it's social justice. That's kind of a buzzword of our day, social justice and respecting humanity. And that's found in chapter 22, verse 16, all the way to chapter 23, verse 33. And then we kind of end our study here with that. But let me walk you through this. I'm just giving you the overview of what's in these sections. No one should ever be exploited is what he says here in verses, uh, in, in, these, in this chapter, in this section. So no one should ever be exploited. This includes virgins or unmarried or single women. In other words, if you read that, you'd see that, that we, have, we live in a culture where guys kind of sleep around and they don't want to marry any girl. Well, that, that addresses that kind of issue right there. He said, you shouldn't, don't exploit women, or women don't exploit men. Just using them, that's the idea here. So it includes unmarried or single women. They were the ones that were more abused in that culture. Also, foreigners in the land, widows, and the poor. And you've got all the Bible references right there on your notes. And then in verses, uh, in chapter 22, verses 18, 19, and 20, he says, occult practices, bestiality, and idolatry is condemned. And then in verse 27 of chapter 22, he says, show respect for God and leaders. In fact, let me read that. I think that's a good one for us to kind of look at real quick. Verse 28, chapter 22 of Exodus, you shall not revile God. In other words, don't take God lightly. When you come to church, don't just kind of yawn and go through the motions and oh my goodness, this is a lot of information this morning, so I don't even know if I even want to... Pay attention, I'm just gonna kind of wait until it's all over and I'll get out here. No, 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 take God seriously. This is God's word. All scripture is inspired of God. God is wanting to speak something to you in this text. Even though it's hard, it's tedious, it's difficult, 
listen, listen to what God is saying. Take him seriously. That's what it says. Don't revile God, nor cor- uh, curse a ruler of your people. Ooh, there's a good one. In fact, I looked that word up, curse, it means abhor, detest, despise, or hate. That would pretty much shut down most of the media outlets, uh, news outlets in our culture today, wouldn't it? I mean, it's unbelievable what we see uh, in the news and how there is so much abhorring, detesting, despising, and hating of our leaders. Very little respect in our culture today, and he says, don't do that. And then, and then he moves on from there in verses 29 and 30. Be generous with what God has blessed you with. Look at verse, uh, let me read verse 29. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. Uh, one thing I love about Desert Breeze, for 27 years we've never passed the plate. We have a kind of a belief that you don't have to beat the sheep, Okay. To get, to get money from them. To, you don't have to work hard to, to, to do that. If sheep are healthy and they're fed, they're going to naturally overflow from the abundance that is in their life as a result of what Christ is doing. And we've seen that for 27 years here. God has continued to bless us because you guys are healthy and because many people like you have encountered the living Christ. And as a result of that, there's this overflow in your life and you give of your time, your talent, and your treasure faithfully, consistently to God through Desert Breeze as we make an impact in the community. It's, it's really spectacular. It's amazing. And we teach a 10-10-80 rule. You give the first 10% to God, the next 10% to yourself, and then you live on 80% is what we teach. And within that, there's a tithes, Offerings and alms, you give 10%, you give offerings, which is over and above, which would be to missions efforts. We have a lot of missions efforts that we have going on here, along with our Dairy to Move as we are continuing to expand our classroom space. And then there's also alms in helping out the poor, and you guys do a great job with that. Praise God. Thank you for your hard work in that and, and what you're doing. And then notice what he says in verse 31, consecrate your whole life to God. And then, uh, then we jump to chapter 23, verses 1 through 9. He says, dispense ju- uh, justice. Judgment must not be influenced by numbers. It's not a popularity vote. That's verse 2. Or money. You can't buy it. Get yourself off because you paid the judge or paid someone off. Or personal feelings. Facts doesn't care about feelings. It's not based on feelings, verses 4 and 5. Or social status, whether you're a rock star, movie star, athletic star, doesn't matter. If you're a star, you've got to face judgment and justice. And then he moves from there to celebrating holy times, verses 10 through 19. In other words, set aside time to renew your love and, and commitment to me. And then he finishes up, verses 20 through 33 of chapter 23, conquering the promised land that, hey, listen, I still have something in store for you. Yes, I'm, I've given you the Ten Commandments. I've talked to you about, I've, I've rescued you. I've redeemed you. I love you. I've given you the Ten Commandments. Now, this is how you implement this in your everyday life. But we're still heading to the promised land. Don't forget what I have in store for you in the future. So let me give you the overarching principles. Here we go. You are generously loved by God. Therefore, you can love generously. That's, that's the overarching principle from this section. You are generously loved by God. Therefore, you can love generously. Here's the next one. We owe God our obedience, our respect, our first fruits, our hearts, and our worship. When you understand all that he's done for you, this is just the natural response. I owe God my obedience, my respect, my first fruits, my heart, and my worship. Here's the last one. God loves you, knows you, wants the very best for you. 
And that's where the promised land comes in. He has a future for you. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Yeah, I'm giving you a bunch of laws. I'm showing you how to live this out. But ultimately, I'm trying to get you to the promised land, a land of milk and honey, a place of fulfillment and success. That's what I have for you. Uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 is what I just quoted there. And so that's what he's saying. Okay, we did it. We got through all of that. And uh, let me see if there's any eyes that have rolled back into their, into their head here. See if we need to call 911. You guys still with me? You guys still here? Okay, now we get to the most important part. That was all important, but how do, we, how do we bridge the gap between our beliefs and our behavior? Why all of the detail? Why is this in God's word? Because I think that's how hard it is to work out your salvation with fear and trembling into the details of your life. It's hard. It's hard work. Work it out, he's saying. Work it out with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will giving you the desire and the ability to live according to what pleases God. So why it's hard to live your faith? If God is perfect, if God in his perfect love, would you guys agree that God is perfect in his love towards us? Would you guys agree with that? So if if God is perfect, if God in his perfect love wants what is best for me, and in his infinite wisdom knows what is best for me, and in his unlimited power is going to do what is best for me, then why would I ever let people, things, and circumstances of life get the best of me? Does that make sense? Why would I do that? And yet I do that, and it's because I don't really believe it. I don't believe that that God has my best interest at heart. And I struggle with that. And so here's three reasons why we struggle, why it's hard to live your faith. Here's the first one, because we underestimate the presence of sin in our lives. We underestimate the presence of sin in our lives. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So what in the world are the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit? What are those? Now, I've asked this question the, the last night and then the service this morning. And when I asked this question, uh, and I told the people to turn to the people next to them to ask them if they knew the answer, all I could hear was crickets in the audience. You know what I mean? So I'm almost afraid to even ask it in this. Uh, so do you, guys, would, do you guys know what the difference is between the works of the flesh and the works of the spirit or the, or the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit? Because this is where the battle is in your heart. You need to know what the battle is. What, what is what's, what's competing in, in my heart? For what? For what? What's, what is that about? So what is that? What do you guys think? Turn, go, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and turn to the person next to you. Okay, so you guys are doing actually a little better here because you guys are, I can actually hear you talking. I don't think those other two services, they even said anything, just like with a blank look in their eyes and kind of like, maybe they needed more coffee, I guess. See, this is the later crowd. You guys are more awake. Okay, I understand. That's cool. So what is that? Here's what I put down. Here's the battle. This is the battle that's going on in your heart. It's the battle for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. 
It's the battle for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. Are you going to get your ultimate meaning, hope, and happiness from your life horizontally, desires of the flesh, or vertically, the desires of the spirit? Are you, are you, going, to, are you going to look to the, the created world to give you what you already have in the creator? That's, that's the battle. The desires, the word desires is an interesting uh, word. It means epithumia. It means an over-desire, an inordinate desire in all controlling drive and longing. The biggest problem with the desires of the flesh is not that we want bad things, but that we want good things too badly. We tend to have this list. We all have our own personal list of if I have that, my life has meaning, my life has purpose. It's kind of unsaid, but it's deep in our heart nonetheless. And, um, and, and we could also put it not just I, if I have that. It could, be in, it could be said like this. If we all have our own personal list of if onlys, if onlys. If only I was married, then I would be happy. If only we could have children, then I would be fulfilled. If only I could land that great job, then I would be satisfied. If only we could buy that house, I, I, I don't think I would want another thing. If only our finances were more stable, then I wouldn't complain anymore. If only my marriage was better, then I'd be okay. If only my children would do better, then I would be content. Whatever sits on the other side of your if only is where you are looking for your ultimate sense of love, joy, peace, lasting contentment of heart. See, see the pursuit of created things over the creator leaves us, when we do that, it leaves us exhausted, addicted, in debt, and still with an unsatisfied heart. Any created if only you have to have, you can't live without, anything that's in that category of if only will make you subject to inordinate fear if something threatens it, inordinate anger if something blocks it, and inordinate despair if you lose it. So, so, the, so the battle is for what is going to have your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. Is it going to be something in creation, which could be very good things like marriage and family and jobs and all those things, or is it going to be the creator ultimately? That's the battle. Here's the next one. So why do we struggle with narrowing that gap? It's because we underestimate the presence of sin in our lives. And secondly, because we underutilize the power of Christ in our lives. He says in chapter 5, verse 16 of Galatians, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we mentioned this last weekend, behind every negative emotion and bad behavior is idolatry. Remember that? Remember when I said that? Behind every negative emotion and bad behavior is idolatry. It's something that I think I can't live without. It's something that I love more than I love Christ. Any negative emotions or bad behavior that you seem to not be able to overcome is because of idolatry. Exodus 23, remember what he said, the first of the Ten Commandments? Because everything else is from that. You shall have no other gods before me. No third option. You're either going to have the one true living God or you're going to have a counterfeit God. And so idolatry is trusting and treasuring something more than God. 
I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says that the philosopher C.S. Lewis says, human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Here's another quote by C.S. Lewis from his writing, The Weight of Glory. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling with drink and sex and ambition. He didn't say this, but I would say desires of the flesh. When infinite joy is offered us, which is desires of the spirit, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea, we're too easily pleased. So you get the analogy that he's using here? We're like little kids playing in a mud puddle when God's offering us a trip to Disneyland or Disney World or to the beach. So the, so the desires of the flesh would be the mud puddle. Desires of the spirit is something so much grander, so much greater in God, what he offers us in our relationship with him. We're going to give our deepest hearts loyalties and affections to something in creation, or are we going to give it to the creator? That's, that's the battle. How do we win that battle? Well, Thomas Chalmers, an old dead theologian, put it this way, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. In other words, your affection for Christ must exceed your affection for the things of this world. So when Christ becomes more beautiful to your imagination and more attractive and desirable to your heart than anything else, and you are regularly lost in love, wonder, and praise of him, that is when you begin to rest in him and release your grip on your list of if-onlys. Here's the third, third thing. So why we struggle with this gap because we underestimate the presence of sin in our lives, because we underutilize the power of Christ in our lives. Here's the third one, is because we underrate the process that change takes in our lives. And now we go to Galatians 6, 7 through 10. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for what... Ever one sows, that will he also reap. You know, when people will shake their fist at God, this is what he's saying. You can shake your fist at God, but ultimately you're going to reap what you sow. You can say, I'm not going to serve you, and I'm going to do my own thing, and I can do whatever I want to do. And it's like, well, yeah, have at it, because you're going to reap what you sow. You can defy God. You can shake your fist at God, but ultimately he's talking about this. There's a principle, an over, overriding principle and it's the, the principle of harvest here. God is not mocked for what, whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So we sow to the flesh when we do things, those things that strengthens or provokes our sinful desires. We sow to the Spirit when we do those things that strengthens or provokes our godly desires. So, so here's the deal. Okay, everybody look up here. You got to get this. You got to get it. Listen, it's not, am I sowing? No, you're sowing every day. What are you sowing? You're either sowing to the Spirit or the flesh. And by the way, this whole idea of this harvest is that, and what's interesting about it is that you reap what you sow more than you sow later than you sow. That's how it works. So if you're sowing to the flesh, that's what it's going to produce. Destruction, corruption, death. You sow to the Spirit. Oh my goodness, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
love, power, peace, joy in Christ Jesus. And so every day we are sowing either to the flesh or to the spirit by the things we watch on TV, by the music we listen to, by the magazines we read, by the people we hang out with. Listen, if this is all the sowing to the spirit you're doing once a week, oh my goodness, this isn't enough. It's gotta be a daily thing. As you're walking with Christ and as you're pouring into your life and you're allowing your life to be shaped by, by Christ and what he's doing and what he wants to do in your life, the roots of your faith produce the fruit of your life. If the fruit is not like Christ, that is an indication that our faith is not in him. Look at the fruit of your life. It, it shows you what, what the root system is and what you're sowing to. And so, you guys are familiar with this idea of old habits die hard, and they, it's really hard to work through old habits. And one of the reasons for that is because God has miraculously shaped us in such a way. There's something in our brain, it's called the uh, reticular activating system. It's the RAS. If you're familiar with it, if you've taken any anatomy or physiology classes or anything like that, it talks about it. It's really quite profound, but it's part of our brain, and it's, it's where we're able to, and some of you drove here, and you were able to get in your car and drive and not have to you know, uh, be real conscientious about uh, stopping at the light. You just kind of did it. It was kind of on automatic pilot. Now, when you first started driving, remember when you first started driving, you were really conscientious about, oh, I'm kind of swerving a little bit too much and really thinking about everything you were doing. But over time, it becomes almost like second nature. It becomes a habit. You guys know what I'm talking about? Now, the problem with that, that reticular activating system, is that you can, you can uh, practice bad things and it just becomes second nature to you. Or you can practice good things and they become second nature to you. It, de- it depends on what you're, what you're practicing, what you're filling your mind and your heart with. Are you sowing to the flesh? Are you sowing to the spirit? Because then you're going to reap based on that. And, and so you can tell by how you're responding to the circumstances of life. If you don't have this ferocious passion for Jesus and want to love the people around you, chances are pretty good you're probably not sowing to the spirit. There's something going on in your life. You might be sowing to the flesh. If the, if, if the scores of the game are more exciting to you than, than God's word and encountering him or your favorite team, or, your, or whatever it might be, if, the, if anything in creation is more exciting to you than the creator, then you're probably sowing to the flesh more so than sowing to the, to the spirit. Or maybe you're just going through a spiritual slump for a season. So, so that's, those are things to be thinking about. So what you want to do is, is, is so fill your heart with the beauty and the value of who Jesus is and what he has done for you that his presence, his power, and his peace dominate your solitude. I can tell you what's most important in your life. What dominates your solitude? What stirs your deepest emotions? What moves you to action? Why do you do what you do? What's the motivating factor of your life? By the way, what you daydream about in your spare time will tell me exactly what you are ultimately serving. And so what you should be wanting to daydream about, if, the, if Jesus is who the Bible says he is, oh my goodness, you're gonna wanna cultivate intimacy with him and know him and walk with him. And, and as, as you have, that becomes almost like an automatic pilot. So when crisis hits, man, what comes to mind for you immediately? It's because you've sowed to the spirit. You have a sense of his presence, his power, his peace to navigate through that to help you to get through those times. That just, that, that becomes a part of you. 
So holiness is being so happy in Christ. So you sow to the, to the Spirit. It's being so happy in Christ that suffering doesn't overwhelm us and sin doesn't overtake us because he is bigger than any suffering and better than any sin in this world. Okay, now, that's that. Let's talk about four questions you need to ask yourself. So I'm sitting down with you. We're hanging out. You've just been blindsided by a crisis in your life, and I'm going to try to help you to walk through this gap between your beliefs and your behavior. You're just feeling like, man, I don't feel like God's even with me. I don't feel like he cares about me. I'm really struggling in my life. And so help me. Help me to get through this. So this is how you narrow the gap between your beliefs and your behavior. You ask this question, first of all, who is God? Who is God? Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. Remember this? This was on the front end of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Big statement about God. Your concept of God determines the quality of your relationship with God. So how's your relationship with God? What's the quality of your relationship with God? If it's not rich and robust, you have a small God. You have a small view of God. When your view of God becomes more consistent with what the Bible is saying, oh my goodness, you're not going to run from him. You're going to run to him. You're going to want more of him. And that's, that's that worship rises or falls with our concept of God. Worry, envy, bitterness, and despair happen when the superficialities of my theology, that is my concept of God, collide with the realities of my life and this world. God is more than the missing piece to your dissatisfied life. He rules the universe and can give you courage to face anything. Listen, God is indescribably great and he's unimaginably good. And whatever you're going through, even this morning, he's more than enough. Look to him, fix your eyes on him. He will give you exactly what you need. I know, I know when you get knocked sideways by something that's catastrophic in your life, it takes a while. You're just kind of still reeling for a time. But I'm here to tell you, you can get through this. He's big enough. Who is God? That's the first question. Here's the second question is, what has God done? What has God done? Exodus 19.4. Ooh, I love these, uh, this verse here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Remember, this is pre-Ten Commandments. He's talking about how he's redeemed them. Remember, remember what I said. He accepts me in Christ, therefore I obey him. That's the acceptance that he's talking about here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. Ooh, beautiful picture of him rescuing us and redeeming us and brought you to myself. So the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have everlasting life. In essence, what he's saying in this verse, so what has God done? It's telling us no sin or suffering is a match for his redeeming, restoring grace. So here's another question for you. Another question for you you can ask the people sitting next to you. What's the greatest thing that God could do for you What's the greatest thing that God could give to you? What's the greatest thing that God could do for you? What's the greatest thing that God could give to you? Real quick, ask the person next to you, see if they know the answer to that question.
I guess it helps to have the mic on, doesn't it? But uh, I was going to talk without the mic on. I, was, I went by the breezeway, and the breezeway's packed out. So you guys are doing that over there too, aren't you? Okay, just make sure. Got a packed house over there, a bunch of youth. Good, it was great to see that. Uh, so what does he do? What's the, there is nothing greater that God could do for you than to, than to reconcile you to himself. And he's done that through Jesus. What's the greatest thing that God could give to you? The gift of himself. Through Jesus, he's reconciled us to himself, and the greatest gift that he could give to us is himself. That's what that verse is saying. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Oh, I love it. Here's the third question. Who am I in light of God's work? Who am I in light of God's work? Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. So this is right after that verse. So I've, I bore you on eagle's wings. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. I bore you on eagle's wings. And I brought you to myself. Now, here's your response. Reciprocate. Respond to this. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, treasured possession, we talked about it last week, is the private wealth of a great king. Absolute monarchs, kings, owned everything, but they had personal possessions that they delighted in and took special care of more than anything else. So here's the idea here. So who's God? What has he done for me? So who's God? He's the creator, sustainer of the heavens and the earth. What has he done for me? Well, he's reconciled me to himself and he's giving me himself to me. And here's the third thing. What's the third thing? I'm his treasured possession. What does that mean? This is what it means. The creator of the universe takes special delight in you and takes special care of you and his presence with you is his greatest gift to you. Don't you think that would make a difference in your life and how you respond to the circumstances of life? Absolutely. If you really believed that, if the truth of that was not just a concept, but was a reality in your heart. See, true love for God and others, remember Jesus summarizing the Ten Commandments, the first four of the commandments represented our love for God, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first four. The next six of the Ten Commandments represented the loving our neighbor as ourself. But, but let, let me just say this, true love for God and others, those two commandments won't grow if we are insecure about his feelings for us. If you're insecure about you being a treasured possession of God, you're not gonna respond with love towards him and love towards others. And in fact, love for God and others grows in direct proportion to an experience of his love for you. So let me ask you this. Are there times in your life, and I hope, I hope regularly, you're basking in his love? I had somebody ask me last night uh, if I missed my wife. She's at the retreat, and I said, I didn't even know she was gone. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, I knew that she was gone, but I said, you know what, uh, I'll be glad when she gets back, but uh, she's not here to boss me around this weekend, and so I've... I have a lot of freedom, and no, she doesn't usually boss me around, but uh, she does have a list of things that sometimes on weekends she wants me to do, and because she didn't have that list, 
I spent some time, I, consp- I spent a considerable amount of time just in study and, and prayer this weekend, and I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. I'll be glad when she comes back to boss me around. <laughs> and, but uh, now she's a sweetheart. You guys know her. But, uh, but man, I'll tell you what, are there, there should be those times in your life, and I did it this weekend. I don't, I don't know what I would do. Uh, I don't know how I would be a pastor. I don't know how I would be a husband. I can't love my wife like I need to love her. I can't love my kids or grandkids. I can't love you guys. I can't lead you guys unless I spend a considerable amount of time just basking in the reality of his love for me that I'm his treasured possession. See, my ability to do all of that comes out of that. Your ability to do all of that. If you're going to love, if you're going to love God with a ferocious love and love the people around you, it starts with you basking in the reality that you, the God of the galaxies, who's God? What has he done for you? He's reconciled you to himself and he's given you his presence and now he calls you, you are his treasured possession. He loves you. He has a special love and a delight in you and takes special care of you. That's amazing. And so here's the next question. How should I live in light of God's work? And he tells us that, verse 6, chapter 19, Exodus, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what that means, we, we studied it last week, a totally different society of people, holy nation, who put on display what God is like, kingdom of priests. So when you spend time in the throne room of the king of the universe who happens to be your father, who takes special delight in you and takes special care of you, it will make you emotionally unshakable in the face of criticism, suffering, and even death, and even give you supernatural capacity to love your enemies. So what I've got to do is I've got to confront myself at the moment. I need to be different with the truth about who God is and what he has done and who I am in light of of God's work and how I should live in light of God's work. Let's do that now. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's just take a moment. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. What are you struggling with in your life? What has God been speaking to you through this study? What uh, What is God teaching you through this study? And what are your struggles? What are your current struggles? What are you struggling with most in your life? Is it physical? Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's relational, marriage, children, family, friends, vocational. Your job is hard. It's difficult. Conflict on the job. Maybe it's spiritual. You just feel cold spiritually. Or maybe it's emotional. Past hurts you're still trying to get over. Or financial. Or maybe you're in turmoil over the political stuff that's going on in our, in our culture today. Now confront yourself, whatever that might be, confront yourself with those four questions. Who is God? He's the creator of the universe. What has he done? He's reconciled me through Jesus. He's reconciled me to himself and he's given me his presence. I have his presence. Who am I in light of who he is and what he's done? I'm his treasured possession. He takes delight in me. He takes special care of me. And then the fourth question is, how, how should I live my life as a result of that? How can I respond to these bad, negative circumstances in my life and bring honor and praise and glory to him? So, for Father, if someone as wise and powerful as you loves us, gave your son to die for us and promised to never leave us or forsake us, why? Why would we ever be anxious, jealous, envious, bitter, despairing, or hopeless when we have you? 
teach us how we can narrow the gap between our spirituality and our reality, between our beliefs and our behavior. Help us to confront ourselves at the moment we need to be different with the truth about who you are, what you've done for us, and who we are in you as we live our faith so that you will be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, amen. Love you guys. Don't forget baptism class right over here. God bless you.